You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa. Hi, welcome to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, and I'm your host, Peter Defty, and today our co-host, Naomi Land, can't make it because I think at this moment her son's getting his appendix removed, but in lieu of that, I'm going to be interviewing Adele Height and Maybe you've heard of her, maybe you haven't, but she's out there and she's talking about some pretty big ideas and ideas that need to be heard. So Adele, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and um, as we were saying before, you know, you're, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you came from, um, how you got on your journey. Um, ah, well, it is, it is a long and winding tale. <laughs> Um, I was always one of these people who was torn between the humanities and the sciences. Um, and it's sort of remarkable now, um, I, I teach undergrads at NC State in um, Raleigh, North Carolina. There's a big push and a lot of support for women going into science, technology, or engineering fields. But I remember back when I was in high school and I was good at math and I was good at science. It, well, Larry, it Summers, Larry, Larry Summers would debate that with you. <laughs> what, that I was good at it? At math. Um, remember Larry Summers said uh, when he was president of Harvard that women weren't very good at uh, Women are bad, right. Well, this is, but this is exactly it, is that I, you know, and I remember my daughter having the Barbie that said, math is hard. Um, so I was still of that cohort when a, a woman who was interested in science or math, it was sort of like, oh, wow, that's sort of weird. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I ended up in the humanities ultimately as an English major, um, although a, a large part of that was because when I was pre-med, I was dissuaded from taking English classes or dance classes or anything like that. And, and that whole paradigm has shifted now we want our doctors to be more well-rounded so um, I was a little I was a little ahead of the curve I think in that regard I, um, but I eventually made my way um, through a master's in English education I taught for many years um, in public schools so I taught high school English and which tells you that I have some Oh, what did I used to say? Um, I retired early, so they let me keep my sanity. <laughs> so I have some perseverance and some ability to, to work under adverse circumstances. And then um, I met Dr. Eric Westman, who if there's a low carb affiliated audience out there listening, they've probably heard of him. He's pretty well known in that community. Um, he was starting a a bunch of studies when, when I met him. Um, he was starting a bunch of studies. When was this? To, so, oh, I wish I could tell you the exact year. This would have been in the 90s. So we met, this was not under professional circumstances. Our kids went to school together. Oh, cool. I met him um, on the PTA board. So he was, he and I were on the PTA board together and I had heard a little bit about the stuff that he was studying over at Duke. Um, and this was at a point in time, I was a vegetarian for many, many years. Um, with each of my pregnancies, I'd gained weight and managed to lose it. But with my third child, 
oh my goodness, I just struggled um, after that pregnancy. Instead of losing weight after that pregnancy, I just gained more and more and more weight. It was, and, and I could not figure out how to make it stop. I counted my calories, I was exercising, I was doing everything that I could think of to do. And um, well, everything it, the it, conventional paradigm said you were supposed to do to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was just following the eat less, move more guidance that I'd come along with and was in my diet for a small planet um, book. And I, you know, I was eating the healthiest diet possible and it was calorie controlled and it was homemade and it was real food. Um, and I was exercising. My husband bought me a gym membership so that I could go to the gym for two hours a day on most days. I was doing everything and it was really, really frustrating. And if Women out there, if if you've ever been through this, um, it's it's really disheartening because anybody you talk to about this who is a health professional, the tendency is really to not believe that you're reporting accurately, um, which is another way of saying lying. Um, or you just don't know how much you're eating or you think you're exercising more than you really are. But I can tell you um, from my own experience and from the women that I met in the clinic, we know exactly how much we're eating. We know how many calories there are in our toothpaste. Um, this is not a matter of willpower or control or paying attention to what we eat. For a lot of women um, who are who are stuck within that paradigm, it's 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 an emotional um, experience to feel your body really working. A, uh, like you, you, you feel like your body is really betraying you. Um, I'm doing everything right, and yet things are not working out the way that I've been told that they should. And I was sure, as we all are, I think at some point um, who go through this, that it, it, something was wrong with me medically. I went to my family physician, and they did the regular tests. Um, you know, I had my blood pressure. They, you know, put me on a scale. Um, check my blood glucose, all of that. And the conclusion, the, the remarkable conclusion that they came to was um, that my blood pressure was going up, my blood glucose was going up. Um, this was all um, related to the fact that my weight was going up and therefore, Miss um, Height, you should really eat less and exercise more. And to my credit, I did not kill the physician who said this to me, but I did scare him. He left the room. <laughs> and um, the guy that he sent back in, I'll never forget him. His name was Bruce Bear, and he told me a different story. He told me that maybe that um, counting calories wasn't really the right way to go about this, and maybe I might think about instead of you know, worrying about my calories, about maybe reducing carbohydrates to make sure that I was getting sufficient amounts of protein, especially if I was going to be working out all the time. He, he told me all of this. I didn't believe a word of it. I just, you know, I, I thought he was nuts. Um, but I walked out of there with that seed of doubt sown in my head. And I resolved to quit dieting and exercising and spend all that wasted time doing some research. So with my little guy. Well, that was your first, his... that was your first memory imprint about low carb or yes. carb restriction. Yes. yes. That was, well, so my OBGYN during my previous pregnancies, he, um, 
I've had two difficult pregnancies. I have three kids. I have two two difficult pregnancies. And during my third pregnancy, he insisted that I not be a vegetarian. Um, he said you need. To... Yeah, yeah. He he um, said you, you. Here's your choice. You can either add eggs and meat to your diet, or you can go on bed rest. Now I had two little kids at the time, and that was not even a choice. So I held my nose and I added meat and eggs to my diet and and fish and so I was eating his rule was protein at every meal every time you eat you have to eat protein and you have to drink a half a gallon of water every day so that was his um those that was his remarkable dietary um intervention and and I did have a terrific um, pregnancy I had no problems um this child as opposed to my previous two pregnancies went full term just it went swimmingly and as soon as I got home from the hospital after delivery, I went back on my vegetarian diet. As soon as, I mean, I have act, act, just a clear recollection of dictating um, the dinner recipe from my chair where I was nursing the baby and no meat, no meat. I'm done with that. I'm done with that. Yeah. So ironic, huh? And so now, yeah, and now so you're friends with Peter Ballersted. Right, right, right. So t- the times, they do change. So, So that was... So when he said that thing about protein, and I remember what my OBGYN said, and just for the record, when I asked my OBGYN many years later about where that advice came from, because I was like, oh, maybe he knew. He said, well, I just looked at your record and vegetarianism, that was weird. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I have a saying to my vegetarian friends, and that is, I have my eyes in the front of my head and I only have one stomach. Yeah. And there's no comeback to that. Well, you know, we we were given a lot of propaganda. I still have mine in the form of um, Diet for a Small Planet. And that is, you, you know, it was a powerful, powerful piece of rhetoric um, for those of us who felt like we needed to save the world. It was a very political uh, polemic about, it was about saving the world, and it was... It, it wraps very much into the work that I'm doing now. But anyway, so I met, coming back around to the to the story, I met Eric during a time when I had stumbled across Protein Power. I had started doing it. It was working just, it was working so well for my body. My body was so happy. Um, I was losing weight. I was getting muscles, which I'd never had before in my you, life. You probably had a libido. Yeah, I had all kinds of things that I didn't yeah. have before. Yeah, well, when I was during during this sort of ugly period when I was gaining weight and uh, trying to stick to my low calorie um, diet and exercise, my hair started falling out. It was really scary. So that's why I was, you know, that's part of why I thought I was um, sick, because it, the symptoms that go along with the malnourishment that comes with that sort of cal- caloric restriction. Um, in addition to the fact that you're not eating the, you know, the foods that are actually helpful for you, um, can be it can be pretty devastating. Anyway, so so I did see um, <laughs> I did begin to notice a difference in my own body, and then I was hearing these rumors about Eric studying that weird low carb diet that we'd all um, sort of heard about and scoffed at with regards to Bob Atkins. And he and I used to huddle over by the teacher mailboxes, and I would ask him how his um, research 
was going because I wanted to know whether or not my heart was going to explode. And he would ask me how my weight loss was going because he wanted to see this sort of working out there in the real world as opposed to um, clinical trial conditions. He used to um, steal my sugar-free candy, which at the time um, I had, it had to be imported from um, Canada uh, and was expensive. And he used to ask me about all kinds of weird stuff like ketone breath that I didn't know about at the time. So, uh, so it was really interesting to, to, to hear about his research sort of just from that layperson's point of view. I felt comfortable knowing that it was being studied and that his um, research participants were doing really well. Yeah, so yeah, that yeah, it's gave me the courage to go on. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I remember when I first started as a business partner in Vespa and I, I actually made a trip out to uh, Raleigh-Durham area and I actually had a customer in Bull City running and I went there and gave a talk and I, I remember there was this pediatrician, female pediatrician in there who was just nuts, ballistic about me talking about the idea of fat as fuel for athletes. And I, I, I made the mention about Eric right there in Duke doing this research on low carb and how successful he was because he had authored yeah. uh, the new Atkins for a new you with, with uh, people I'm close to Steve Finney and Jeff Volick. Yeah. And she just thought he was a nutcase. Yeah. And so I guess he, he <laughs> took a lot of, sounds like he took a lot of heat. Uh, initially um, for his work and and he, he came, did. yeah and he came about it I think he recollected that he came about it because some of his patients were telling him about this right well he was uh, a smoking cessation guy and um, and and it was sort of interesting because he would tell it, he would help his patients quit smoking and then they'd all gain weight yep. so he felt bad you know are we just trading one set of risk factors for another and then he had a patient come in uh, who didn't gain weight and of course when that happens you're like okay what did you do tell me your secrets so that I can share it with my patients and then the and the the patient said, well, I was doing the Atkins diet, and, and Eric had the same reaction that most people do, which is, oh, my gosh, you're killing yourself. And so he ran all the lipid panels and all that thing and, and found out the guy wasn't killing himself, and he wasn't getting weight. And, of course, this is what peaked. So, so it's sort of interesting to me um, from the critical studies position that I'm in now is that many of us who – um, are willing to accept low carb diets as a um, as a reasonable nutritional therapy. All of us have these conversion stories where we believed the old dogma and um, and then we um, became enlightened and and learned something new. So it's not like all of us, you know, sort of um, grew up thinking this way all of us ran into various issues in our lives or or with our patients to encourage us to begin to think in a different way about um about what was going on and i think that that i think that people need to hear that that doubt or that uncertainty was there to start with that we weren't all sure about what would happen and um and whether this was the right way to go um because because we didn't know when we started and and there are still lots and lots of questions and I think that's an important thing that we need to sort of acknowledge as well. Yeah, no no exactly. It's and, and it, it's it's all very individualized and very dynamic. As you go along yeah. in your yeah. your process, you know, things are going to change and you have to keep continually recalibrate. I think that that's an yes. important uh part of it. Um 
And so, you know, you met Eric Wisman, started to get this going for you and working in the real world. And then where did that take you? Well, he, so about 10 years after we'd first met, he decided to open a clinic at Duke that would help patients um, use a low carbohydrate diet regime and have support for it through the medical system. Um, but critically or crucially, it would be an insurance pay plan. So <clears throat> this is different from a lot of the other low carb physician-based programs. Atkins was an out-of-pocket one. A lot of, excuse me, a lot of them are out-of-pocket simply because um, if they're, at that time, obesity itself was not considered a disease, so you didn't, couldn't code for it. Um, you had to have a comorbidity, which is not that difficult to, you know, locate in a person who has, um, issues, you know, health issues accompanying obesity. And so, so these are the patients they were, that we were seeing. They had um, other risk factors aside from weight, so that those were coded for, but that um, if they were concerned about weight, then then that could also be addressed. And, and I think um, at this point in my thinking, I was still very focused on weight, but I, I think I really would like to make it clear that um, my thinking has really shifted about that, um, that we as a group of professionals and people who, who work on this issue, we, we need to stop <laughs> being so focused on overweight and obesity and really shift to um, health issues. Because I don't, I don't believe that we understand the, the different kinds of obesity. I don't think we understand um, when obesity is a health problem and when it's not. Um, and that there are so many moralistic um, aspects related to our evaluation of an understanding of body size as it relates to behavior that we get really caught in that trap. So, um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, <laughs> females are particularly, um, caught in that. Um, yeah. and part of its physiology and the brain hardwiring is just very different. And, and, you know, I work with a lot of female athletes and, you know, they, they're slender and yet they'll put three pounds on and they'll, feel like they're the fattest woman on earth. Yeah. And so... Well, we've socialized that yeah. to a large extent, you know. Um, and it, it's... And I think it's really problematic. So um, I, I think that we have to move our thinking away from focusing on obesity and focusing on body weight and BMIs. And we need to start thinking about all of what we're doing in terms of health. Uh, so... Um, I think that's critical. But when I started working with Eric, um, it, it sort of forced my hand in that regard because all of the patients that we saw had these comorbidities. So I started working at the Duke Clinic and seeing all of these patients come through, a lot of whom were women, and who were really angry and upset that they'd been told that the only, only path to health was to count calories to eat less and move more and, and that was and, it and cut out the fat yeah well that was part of it and and for because that's the most efficient way of cutting out calories i mean that's just math <laughs> you know for, i mean that it is it's just math fat has so many more calories per gram than other foods that it's 
you know, that's sort of easy to rationalize. Of course, the whole, um, the whole logic behind it neglects the idea of adequate essential nutrition. And what I saw in clinic, I think, which was, which was very startling to me, is that women would come in and without, they're not, they don't think of themselves as vegetarian or as limiting meat. And yet they had very, very low protein intake, very low, because when they were moving the fat out of their diet, it took a lot of the protein with it because protein naturally comes with fat. Well, yeah, and this is one of my, 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 one of my big personal rants um, based on what a lot of uh, female athletes have told me and, and I've observed is, is this message is, is especially getting drilled into young women at the time of their age of development when they should be on a high-fat diet, their body image, you know, young adolescent women, they're, they're going off the fat and, you know, for not only the protein intake but and protein assimilation, but for all the essential fat-soluble vitamins that are so important. And, and you know, based on what I've uh, learned and developed through our program with athletes that, you know, the whim, woman's hormonal balance is so delicate. It's it's just absolutely critical. They're getting that that nutrition and 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 let's face it, concentrated carbohydrate sources are basically essentially devoid of nutrition. Yeah. Well, this is and I agree. That is really to me at the root of the problem right there. So, um, you know, if we'll talk long enough, you'll find that I'm not a um, I'm not anywhere close to being a radical uh, advocate of low-carb diets. I frankly don't care <laughs> if people eat carbs or not. But what's most important to me is that people are, are adequately nourished. And that starts with protein. And it includes fat. And you, if you are um, a postmenopausal female, you don't have room in your diet for a lot of extra calories. I mean, that's just a reality. I don't think that we can um, make the claim that in every case the calories don't count because that's not that's not what I saw in clinic. Um, no, you're you're absolutely but... right there. You're absolutely right there. <laughs> Even fat adapted people, and then there's a lot of keto people making this 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 grave error. Is is you know it's like I say when when you. With a fat person, it's calories in, calories out. With a carbohydrate, it's calories cubed equals calories burned times calories glycated times calories stored. So it, it, it's worse on a, on a, a carbohydrate-based diet, but, but if you're just taking in way too many calories, eventually the weight creeps up. Yeah, and, you know, if you're postmenopausal, it's just your your body is in a state where as I was joking the other day, it, it can take the highest quality diet that you're on, but if there's any extra calories in it, it turns it into body fat and a bad attitude. So, um, you know, so if that's a concern, then that's a concern. But as long as you're adequately nourished, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I look at the pictures that of my family from, um, you know, back in the day when we were, when, when the obesity epidemic wasn't a moral panic issue and older women were typically heavier. I mean, that was just how we looked, you know, when women's and women in their sixties were not thin svelte creatures that look like their bodies were in their thirties. And we've 
made obesity into a pathology to the extent that if you're a postmenopausal female who's naturally um, has, you know, has the capacity to store a little extra body fat for the times when, you know, you're at the bottom of the food chain or whatever it is, evolutionarily speaking, um, we've just, we've decided that that's not socially acceptable. And, um, you know, those women end up, I think, becoming malnourished in their attempts to keep their weight under control. It's really a problem. No, I would, I would t tend to agree with you. And, you know, on our, on our pyramid, we, our second tier after fat adapt, getting fat adapted is nutrition, not calories, because yeah. it it does it does trump thing and and and, and getting the nutrition in a bioavailable, nutrient dense form. Yep. Because of like yep. like what you say, I mean, the body if it's if it's relatively fat adapted, it's very efficient. So it it takes very little food, but I think when you look at the evolutionary pressures that shaped us, one of the big incentives to go out there and hunt and gather was hunger. And, and as I've said numerous interviews, that um, nature's not pretty. And, and for females, the hardwiring was basically females were, were, are hardwired to eat and save for two, um, with ketosis being the default, because at late gestation, childbirth, and lactation, um, you're not going to be very good at hunting and gathering, so you need to have some source, and you can't depend on the male to be around. Right. Um, and so, you know, you see this and, and if you don't get the nutrition, um, nature doesn't really care about the female. You're a vessel and you see this in third world countries where, you know, you'll have a, a, a teenage or early 20s mother and she'll have two down and one slung on her breast and it's literally sucking the life out of her. Yep. Yep. So I, so from my point of view, from a clinical point of view, um, for me, adequate nutrition is first and foremost, and I think pro probably that um, is a bias towards women and towards childbearing because we've been so socialized to be worried about our body size and our body shapes that, um, that there is a tendency towards restriction and malnourishment uh, um, in ways that really undermine health. And I do think that we, we've seen that um, really become problematic in the m most recent dietary guidelines advisory committee report they report that 40 percent of american women um have inadequate protein levels that's just incredible <laughs> in a country like ours that um that that there would be this lack of of nourishment and you're right, at such a crucial point, because this is mostly adolescent and young women, crucial point in development, and you're setting up, I think, you're setting up any babies that should arrive under those conditions of, of protein inadequacy for lifelong health problems. Yeah, no, I would have to agree. And not only that, with the mothers themselves, um, you know, problems with, with carrying children and, and childbirth, and then then even, you know, a lot of my athletes will talk about, you know, Nikki Kimball talks openly about how uh, a certain rock star East Coast doctor got her and her other cross-country skiing buddy. She was a biathlete on an Olympic track in a pre-med, you know, told her they were all fat and they need to cut the fat and eat more carbs. And it literally wrecked her, you know, gave her the depression. She traces her depression back to that point. And um, it was due to that that lack of of nutrition that you speak of and and so i i think that 
you know, you, when you look at, at a lot of ancient cultures, um, as Steve Finney would point out, they figured it out and, and the young women were given these nutrient rich foods, particularly when they were in their menstrual cycles and, uh, pregnancy and lactation. Yep. 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 So I, my college students, when we, um, when we talk about nutrition in my class, which we do because I use it as a um, as a case study for a lot of critical theory and critical cultural theory questions, because it's such a great example of how science, politics, and culture all overlap and intertwine. Um, I'll have a lot. A lot of young women will um, report that their doctors told them that they needed to eat more get this now, red meat, because they were becoming anemic um, because of their periods. And um, it's so interesting for me to hear that after having come through an era where that was really, you know, no doctor would do that. So it, so I think there's, um, there's some indication that maybe some of those uh, some of those political issues are beginning to recede. I, I, the tide has not turned yet. No, we still have but, a we still have a big uphill battle, but but it's yeah. it it is it is gaining momentum. I think yep. there's more. You know, the the pushing the rock uphill is it's still a big rock to put in a long ways uphill to go. But there's yeah. more people yeah. pushing every day. Yeah, and I think I mean it's interesting to me because like I, I at, at this point in my life I see it from so many different perspectives. So after working with Eric and seeing these sort of strange, <laughs> you know, situations in clinic that, um, you know, and when you change somebody's diet and put them on a low carb diet, you're changing a lot of things about their diet. You're not just changing macronutrient percentages. You're changing quality of food. You're changing attention to food. You're changing a lot of things. So, so, so fill in a few gaps for, for me, if sure. not the audience. So, so you became, you retired from being an English teacher, met Eric Westman through PTA. Somewhere along yep. the way, you got an RD when you started so working with him? So not yet. No, no, no. I started working with him as um, a health educator. What he really needed. Oh, because you were an educator. You, yeah. Right. And, and you could write. So, uh, yes. And what I could, so I was in charge of creating patient materials. Um, I'm very proud to say that in the, I think it's in the back of Gary Tobbs's um, Why We Get Fat book where he gives some um, sort of concrete advice that those are materials from Eric's clinic that I wrote. Um, and I got a lot, you know, it was one of these things where it was kind of fun. I would get lots of, so I, I had my personal um, experience to draw from. I talked to the patients and I would revise and update based on the kind of feedback that, that we were getting from the patients about what was working and what was not working for them and what additional information that they needed and things like that. And so it was really fun. It was this um, big, long, ongoing patient education process for me um, to learn from them as, as well as teach them about, um, about the diet. So also they literally needed to know where to shop and how to cook some of these things. So I would bring in a frying pan <laughs> and a spatula. And, you know, I didn't have a, a Bunsen burner, but that would have been handy. But I would show them, you know, this is what, this is, these two things are all you need to cook an egg. That's it. You know, you just crack it in the pan with some butter and you're good. 
And no, it doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be fancy or easy. We were, they were having a Twitter discussion about this um, just today that when we, when we took away meat and saturated fat, we took away sort of the original fast food. So part of my job was not just to teach the patients about the, the diet. I wasn't qualified to prescribe the diet. Eric was prescribing it. It was simply my job to help them to, to carry it out. And, um, you know, I could tell you, because I'd been doing it for a decade now at that point, like which aisle in Kroger to walk down and on the bottom shelf, that's where you could find this particular, you know, water chestnut flower or whatever that we were looking for. So it, it was, I, I hope, I think that it was really helpful to the patients in terms of everyday practical, um, you know, putting that, that this knowledge to work for them. And that was just a real, it was such a treat for me. I, I learned so much from these people. I did eventually go back and get, um, and become an RD. I um, entered the Masters of Public Health program, RD program at UNC, which is a terrific program. It is, people complain about how you become an RD and you have to be stupid and turn your brain off. Not this program. The, the MPHRD program at UNC is, outstanding. Um, the woman who runs the program, Amanda Holliday, is amazing. She is a true lover and believer in science. Is she still you there? She's still there. She's still there and she still runs the program and it's still a terrific program. Um, I've had a number of friends and colleagues to go through this program and it's it's just, she she the other thing about Amanda that's really special and about this program that's really special is her focus is geriatric nutrition and guess who besides women <laughs> are really a critical population when it comes to nourishment and that's our geriatric population and there's more of them all the time um, I'm gonna I'm getting ready to get my you know to become a card-carrying senior citizen like any day now um, and I won't kiss and tell I'm, <laughs> I'm, old, I'm old too Right. So it's so that's I mean, if we're lucky, that's the direction we're all headed in. Right. No, we're so, not. No, 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 no. We're a little denial. A little vanity is a good thing, Adele. No, no, I I'm I refuse to to play that game. I'm getting old and I don't mind admitting it. And but I I feel better now than I did when I was in my 30s and I was a vegetarian. So that tells you something. Less, fewer aches and pains, more energy, all of that sort of thing. And, and the difference is, is many things, but a big difference is adequate nutrition. You've got to be adequately nourished. If your body doesn't have, I mean, we eat food because there are things out there in the world that we don't have in our body that we need to have in our body. That's the bottom line for food. You know, there's lots of, there's cultural and social and all kinds of other things and, and you can have a specialized fat burning diet or, or whatever other kind of diet that, you know, you've convinced yourself is important. But bottom line is food is needed because there's things out there in the world that your body requires in order to function. Well, and, it's, it's part of the biological system of life. I mean, right. we're part of a big biological system and for us to sustain ourselves and live, some other thing comes and we come through it and it's, 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 it's all part of a wonderful biological system. Right. And, and we're, 
in and in America, we don't like to acknowledge that life and death are intimately interconnected. That you don't get to have one without the other. Exactly. And that's where a lot of vegetarian and vegan um, politics and ideology comes from, which is one of the reasons why I am you know, happily going to live my life and hopefully, as Mary Vernon used to say, functionality, 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 death. Um, that's, you know, if you do it right, that's what you get, I think. Um, not, I don't, I don't want, you know, to add up the number of years, the person who lives the longest wins. That's, that appalls me on so many levels, I, I can't even discuss it. <laughs> um, I had a, I have, I have a sister who died very suddenly um, in her 40s from a, a condition that is not, you know, a chronic disease condition that could have been prevented or any of the rest of that stuff. She didn't die because she lived badly. She died because she died. And for me to think that there's somehow some moral merit to me outliving my sister just offends me on so many levels. Uh, I just, I, it's just ridiculous. And this is part of what I think we need to get away from. And this is what I study now. So going back to the, the big loop here, um, I worked with Eric. I was really curious about this diet. And I felt like if, you know, I'm a class A number one skeptic. And I was watching this over and over again in clinic and watching people succeed. I was also, also watching people fail. Um, I, I want to be straightforward about that. Not everybody lost weight on the diet. Um, most people got better in most ways. I, I, I think that I can safely say that. But we had a lot of attrition. So we had a lot of people drop out. We don't know why they didn't come back. We don't know if the diet was so easy and so, um, you know, it worked so well for them and um, they just didn't need our support or if they were frustrated and they um, did not succeed and didn't want to come back because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of baggage attached to that. Um, so I, I don't know, but I saw a lot of things that raised a lot of questions for me, but mostly my motivation to leave and go back to school was based on two things. One, if I was going to tell people that reducing carbohydrates was a healthful way to eat long term, I wanted to find out if that was really true. And the other thing was that I wanted to understand why it was that we'd only been presented with one way of becoming healthy. I wanted to understand why me and so many of these other women were not given an option. Um, and, and if those two questions were related, if the reason that, that, that we weren't given an option was because the weight of the science really truly um, came down in favor of long-term health is related to a high carbohydrate, low, um, low fat calorie controlled diet, or, or, or what was going on. So I wanted to answer those questions and I wanted to answer them for myself. So when I started my MPHRD program, um, I took a bunch of biochemistry right off the bat so that I could take as much chemistry as I could in my program. And um, I got interested enough to apply to the nutrition epidemiology program PhD program, and I got accepted to that. So I thought that I could answer some of my questions through continuing my education in that regard. Um, it did not work out that way. <laughs> um, as I went through my MPH program, I think my questions became more pointed. 
and more difficult for the people there at UNC, um, not the folks in the MPHRD program, as I said, uh, Amanda was and is terrific and follows the science and is really invested in geriatric populations who benefit from adequate protein and adequate fat in their diet. Um, but a lot of the other folks in the program had a hard time with me pointing out that our rapid increase in obesity rates occurred after we gave out dietary guidance to prevent obesity. And I realize now that that's um, an issue that has to do more with critical cultural theory and rhetoric than it does with biology necessarily. Um, I, I, think that there's, I think that there's multiple ways of looking at that problem. And I wasn't aware of that at the time. So I asked a lot of obnoxious questions and um, I got shut down a lot. <laughs> Put it mildly. So, so you're a um, rabble rouser. You were a rabble rouser, I, or you were seen as a rabble rouser. You don't look or, or seem like a rabble rouser at all. I, 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 on the other hand, do cause trouble. Yeah, well, um, I think a lot of people who met me at that program would say that I caused trouble. Yeah. So you were asking quite. You were asking questions. I, I just, I just seem with your demeanor and all that 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 you wouldn't be quite as well, I'm, threatening I'm, as I, I could be. <laughs> I, because I would just say I'm, this is this is mess effed up and that wouldn't go over very well, but you were just probably asking questions. Well, I was, but I wasn't, I wouldn't. Uh, so I hate, con I hate conflict. I hate arguing. I'm, I'm not a confrontational person as you've uh, surmised. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm actually sort of reticent and shy, although people who know me and I say that and they laugh out loud, but I don't like confrontation, but here's what I like even less than confrontation. I don't like hypocrisy. I don't like um, injustice. And I have interpreted, and I do still interpret the situation that we're in currently with regards to nutrition in America. This is a human rights issue. I, I you know, I, 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 I don't want to overstate it, but I don't think I am overstating it when I say that for women who are low income, especially for minority women, because we haven't we haven't studied these these groups, and we are using information extracted from a very elite population. All of the Harvard observational studies come from white, well-educated, female medical professionals. This is not the rest of the world. And we take the information that we got from those bodies, those particular bodies, and we impose it upon everyone else's body in a cause effect rationale. So it's not, here's what we observed, wonder if we'll observe it over here. It's, we observed it, therefore it's cause and effect, therefore we're gonna take this information, we're gonna give it to you, and if we don't get the same cause, if we don't get some, the same effect that we're expecting, you know who the problem is? The problem is you. The problem is not our intervention. The problem is you. You're lying. You're doing it wrong. Whatever. It's you, not our conception of what your body should be doing. And that, excuse my French, pisses me off. <laughs> oh, you can piss so all you, you want go. around here because I, I, <laughs> I have a foul mouth and I try to keep it off the podcast, but I can be well, pretty... Well, that just yeah. nothing makes me angrier then, and this is what the, my doctor was saying to me, essentially, I, I've heard it, for that matter, I have to say, I've, I've heard it in clinic. I've heard this 
this so many times that if if what we expect your body to do under the circumstances that we give an intervention and, and it doesn't happen, then we then then you're doing it wrong or you're lying to us about what you're doing. Well, and, and, I, I, and I think what's I, what's salient there, Adele, is is there's some pretty basic human physiology things that are not debated yet that people just kind of gloss over, you know, like blood sugar, you know, um, like inflammation, uh, you know, some, some pretty, pretty basic stuff about, you know, what food does or doesn't do. And, and I just, it just kind of amazes me how the disconnect, um, I just did an interview with uh, Judy Baker, who's somebody I've collaborated with and she, oh, she's awesome. She is, she is awesome, but you should listen to that, that interview because she talks about what they were feeding her husband when he had his heart attack here recently oh, in yeah. the thing. And it was just, yeah. it's just appalling the disconnect that people who are educated in physiology can't make the connection about what they're feeding the people and what it's doing to their physiology. And, and that's kind of the, the, the crux of it. And, and, and if, and I live here in Tulare County and if you're, if you, you know, as somebody who was getting a PhD in epidemiology, this is one of the counties in the nation that has some of the worst uh, poverty statistics. A lot of uh, young single women with, with kids, uh, a lot of them on the WIC program. Um, my wife is a research scientist with the uh, UC Extension, so they have a nutrition program and all that. And and like you say, they're they're putting out very well intended. And I think we both agree that that the intentions are good amongst a lot of these people, but the information they're providing is 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 just patently wrong. Right, and and I want to add that we make the same mistake in low carb in low carb interventions. Um, I, I don't think that we can ex uh, um, give ourselves a, a pass on that. Uh, and I can tell you again, and Eric, please forgive me, but I, you know, we had a patient, we put on the diet, she was smart, she was well educated, and she was a long-term dieter. So this woman knew how to diet. If there was one thing she knew how to do, it was how to follow a diet but she was not losing weight on our program. And um, she, had not, she hadn't had any problems with blood sugar, so we, we couldn't use that as a baseline um, you know, for improvement. She did not have typical insulin dysregulation markers, so she was an African-American woman. Tip, for most people, insulin dysregulation will show up as low HDL and high triglycerides. Yep. So if you have low HDL and you have high triglycerides, we don't need to check your insulin because we know it's dysregulated from those markers. Well, she didn't have that. So we assumed that everything else was fine. Um, you know, she had a very high BMI and she had been struggling with her weight for many, many years. Diabetes ran in her family. Um, and I remember training her and, oh, I feel, I, you know, to this day, day I feel bad about this and she I was telling her what she could and couldn't eat on the diet that's what I did um, and she started crying and I wasn't thinking and I sort of you know patted her and I said well you know you do have to give up some of your favorite foods but we have some recipes that'll help you with the transition away from sugary starchy foods. We have a low carb cheesecake recipe, which by the way, I'm actually very proud of. <laughs> and I, I'm yammering on and on. And finally, she looks at me and she is not sad 
because she's giving up her favorite foods, she is angry. And she is angry at me because I have completely not listened to what she was saying, which is she's already given up all her favorite foods. She's given up essentially everything already. Okay, she still has this um, very high BMI. She's still being lectured all the time by her doctors to lose weight, but she, this woman is dieting constantly. And basically what she was having for, for breakfast was a half a granola bar. And she would feel, and, and then try and eat nothing else for the rest of the day to the extent that she could manage that. And this is the only way that she was losing weight by essentially fasting, um, which makes sense with the rest of the story, but didn't make sense at the time. Um, so uh, we put her on a low carb diet. She's not losing weight. She comes back after two, two weeks. She hasn't lost weight. I, you know, we go over some things. She comes back another two, two weeks. She ha still hasn't lost weight. Eric is convinced that she's not following the diet. I'm convinced that she is. Um, we go back and forth about this a number of times. I say, check her insulin. I mean, I just, I didn't know what to say, but finally what we came up with, I, I think you should check her insulin. He's like, well, you know, look, her HDL and tags are normal, so why should we do that and what would we change anyway? And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you'd quit accusing her of lying to us, but I thought, well, at least, you know, we'd have one more piece of information and then, and then maybe we have something. Well, suffice it to say, of course, her insulin was off the charts, right? Yep. And, and it all makes sense now uh, about why it was that she couldn't lose any weight at all unless she was practically fasting. Um, so she eventually ended up, she ended up using metformin in conjunction with low carb diet and, and that was successful for her. But what I learned later on in my graduate studies is that for African-American populations, insulin dysregulation does not manifest as um, as in lipid levels. So you're not going to see the kind of dyslipidemia with um, high triglycerides and low HDL like you do in white people. So we're using this Caucasian biomarker standard to, to look at people who aren't Caucasian and see what's going on with their lipids and make assumptions about not just their insulin levels, we're making assumption about their character. And this is a problem. Well, that, that doesn't that problem. fit the pattern? Those black people, dark-skinned people, you got to be a little scared of them. That You know, you can't right. trust them, right? You can't <laughs> trust them, exactly. <laughs> and and there is, there's so many social stereotypes wrapped up in our lack of um, thinking about even things like biomarkers from this, um, you know, from a more multiracial perspective you know oh if it works for white people it works for everyone because of course white people are the center of the universe right it's a problem and and she taught me that lesson boy howdy you know I, and and she was one of the women who said Adele you need to you need to make sure that this that this changes um, and so she has always been an inspiration to me and a lesson to me that yes even in the low-carb community we um, jump to conclusions and we assume that our favored paradigm is a one-size-fits-all paradigm, and it isn't. And um, and we make some of those same mistakes. And so um, I, I think it's really important to acknowledge the things that we don't know and to acknowledge the people who don't fit um, the intervention 
in in our world. Um, so well, that, and that's what that's humbling. what goes back to what we were talking about before that we started was we're, we're, you know it's a constant journey of learning, and if you assume you know yep. it all, you're you're setting yourself and others up for yep. multiple yep. disasters. But one of the things I'll comment on there with darker skin people, uh, the insulin triad and the weight gain, uh, what I've kind of come to surmise doing a lot of reading, especially with Richard Hollick's work and some others, and then looking at the whole lipid markers is when you, the darker the skin, the more potential for low vitamin D levels. Um, even, even in in us white people, I think we see, I see with athletes chronically low and the, and the reference range is actually on my, in my opinion, because I'm an empiricist. I have a wife who's actually a scientist. I'm surrounded by scientists. So I know what science is. I'm not, and I can say, since I don't have a PhD or an MS or a MD, I can say things anyway, because people have already kind of figured out I'm a heretic and an idiot. So, um, (laughs) so I can say the things you can't say, um, but that's one of the things we see constantly is low, low vitamin D levels, and particularly in African-Americans. And, and it's just one of those things that's going to contribute to that, that high insulin. Um, I'll bet if you would have checked her vitamin D, it would have been in the tank. Uh, right. Well, and, and, and again, like you said, lifelong learning, um, we're, we're always learning more. That was not on our radar at yep. that point in time. And, and that's different now, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, a lot of um, African-American people, though, have, have normal vitamin D levels anyway. So, you know, so, so it's, I guess my, the lesson for me was that we always need to check our intervention before we, um, <laughs> before we character assassinate anyone. That, that that's just not the way to go about it. That the first thing that you do is you reassess your intervention before you reassess the human being who's in front of you. Um, and I know that there's noncompliance and I know that, that patients aren't always forthcoming with their physicians or with their healthcare providers. I don't care. You trust, I mean, if that, if that relationship of trust is not established, you're not gonna accomplish anything anyway. So, so do that first. And then, um, and then figure out why an intervention may not be, may not be working for a particular yeah, patient. Yeah, be willing to second-guess everything, not just the patient, yeah. but your own biases right. Right. And, and the intervention right. itself. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. I mean, because you don't know. And, um, and, and I think that's just been a – so that, that was part of the thinking that led me to – the program I'm in now at NC State, which is communication, rhetoric, and digital media, which allows me to use um, theoretical frameworks from the humanities and social sciences to analyze these exact same questions, which makes it a lot of fun for me because I get to have the scientific perspective and then I get to critique the scientific perspective. <laughs> so, so, so are you in? To... A, are you currently in a PhD program? I am. I I have passed my exams and I'm working on my dissertation. Okay. And when do you expect to be done with this with I, this phase of learning? I expect to be done by the end of the year. So um, by by the end of 2017, I expect to be a fully fledged PhD. Well, and so okay, so you have an RD and you were on a PhD in nutritional epidemiology before, but that kind of went sideways. Um, and now you're getting the PhD in communication. 
yes. in science, science communication, which, which at NC State is a, is a wonderful, you know, university in terms of, of science. So um, kudos for you. It's, it's, that's, that's the real deal. Um, and what, what, what are you finding is your path here, uh, your calling? Because obviously you're taking this to another level because you're one of the voices out there that, that's actually doing the communicating. So to um, to sort of in a nutshell, uh, my job is to piss everyone off. So I'm an equal opportunity offender when it comes to um, poking people on all sides of the nutritional paradigms. Um, I I won't mention any names, but I was having a long involved argument with one of the thought leaders in the low carb community. And it sort of boiled down to the questions that we wanted to ask. And um, his question was, what should we tell people? What, what intervention, um, what's the best way to, conv to convince people to follow the intervention where they reduce their sugars and starches in order to prevent long-term sickness, obesity, and poor health. And I just went all over that. <laughs> I mean, so first of all, um, so can uh, I, oh. before, before you start that, was he real? Was he, what, you don't have to name the person, but was he, <laughs> what, I have a little theory that I'm, I'm actually composing into a, a, a chapter in the book, but, um, one of the, my, with one of my first uh, lunch meetings with Steve Finney, he said there are thought leaders, there are consensus leaders, and there's a consensus followers. Well, I'm going to add to that that there's also um, communicators, and a lot of the people who position themselves as thought leaders are really consensus leaders. Um, you know, because usually the people who are the thought leaders are the guys that get labeled as quacks because they're they're actually doing something innovative. And, it, you know, so usually the people who are, I'm seeing this happen right now within the sphere is a lot of the people in that low carb or keto sphere because um, uh, are, are people who are actually communicators who are trying to position themselves as thought leaders. Yeah. No, this guy's... Um... This guy's a thought leader. <laughs> okay. So, um, so, but he, you know, he's he's very and 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 a terrific human being and one of the smartest people I know. So, just a great person. But, um, but so the I the question sort of was, um, you know, if you communicate to people that certain foods are making them fat, sick, and unhappy then, you know, what's the best way to do that to prevent all this fatness, the sickness, and this unhappiness? Well, of course, I took objection to the fact that, that, that fatness and sickness and unhappiness are equated because they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. um, and as you've heard me say already, we need to not be talking about fat, fat, or fatness, which we talk about a lot, because one, one of the things that I learned and the, um, a lesson that, that, was just, boy, in my face in clinic. The first two patients that I met in clinic, one was a man with a very large BMI. He was about as big around as he was tall. Um, and 
that was one kind of obesity. The, the second patient was a tall man, looked pretty normal from about the belly, you know, rib cage up, but then he had the pregnant metabolic belly. These were two very, very different fat people. Oh, God. He, right? was a, he was a guy with a beer belly and a sunken ass. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Two very, very different fat people. So um, we put them both, of course, on, on the low-carb diet. That's what we were doing there. But I really think that the first guy, he would have been, he would have done all right on, uh, on a low-calorie diet. So the, the deal with him was his mother did all his cooking for him. We trained her. She was in charge of his meals, and he just ate what she put in front of him, and, and he lost weight, and he did fine. The other guy, it was a lot trickier. Um, he was very compliant. He was a big fan of the diet, but it was just a lot trickier because we were dealing with metabolic issues with him. With the other guy, we were just dealing with adipose tissue, really. Um, so these were very, very different people, even though you would you would want to lump them into the category of, oh, well, they both have obesity and that's both problematic. Um, but it was a different, it was really a very, very different problem for these two patients. And that, I think that's really important. I think we lose sight of that. But the question that was being asked was, what's the best way to tell patients how to follow this particular regime where we want them to reduce their their carbohydrates, their sugars, and their starches. And I had a very different question, which was, um, how do we take into account the uncertainty of our recommendations and balance that with the knowledge that as soon as we give a patient a prescription for how to change or, or why they should change what they're eating, we're changing their relationship with something that is central to human existence. So we tell people how to eat all the time without thinking about what that means to that person in terms of their day in, day out relationship with not just food itself, but the whole culture that surrounds food in their world. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Um, I remember a patient coming into clinic and saying, he's, you know, he's on his low-carb diet and he's doing fine, but his sister is get, coming to visit and she always makes him biscuits. And he doesn't know what to do. I mean, he is truly anxious about having to tell his sister that he's not going to eat her biscuit. And, it, you know, that that just has stuck with me for so long and it made me think about all of the other things that are in our world that are part of food and eating that when we draw these black and white lines you this food is sanctified and you may eat it this food is forbidden and you may not eat it what are we doing <laughs> in people's brains as well as in their bodies? And so that's a real question and concern of mine. Well, I think it's, it leads to the human condition. And, and, and I think one of the things that we do here is we, we try to treat the person we're working with as an individual and make them feel like an individual. So, so like you say, they are heard and they're, you know, you're structuring something around what their situation is. Um, if they're, you know, we don't work, you know, I don't work with a lot of uh, sick people, but usually a lot of the athletes I do get 
have got GI issues or some other issue coming to them. So you have to identify the underlying issues that may need to tailor and, and, and move it along. But I think getting people off this this fear and conscious thought is so huge. And I've, I've been saying this for years that that the stress and the conscious thought, all that is as big a problem as, the, as too many carbohydrates in the diet because you're 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 stre- you know you're having this chronic cortisol response and it's it's causing dysregulation metabolic dysregulation on a number of levels and you know i see people who are just absolutely focused on being perfect at it but they won't relax and they can't get results yeah you know and and so i think a lot of it's to put people at ease and 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 get them to where you structure it as an individual and and make it doable for them in the context of their life because if it isn't doable they aren't going to do it right right Exactly. And I, I think that that's I, I think that that's so important. And um, and to understand even then that what they can do now isn't necessarily what they can do six months from now or two years from now. Yeah. Um, the world changes around us um, and our bodies change, as you were saying at the beginning. It's not just individual, but it's also dynamic. Yep. So. Um, you know, vegetarianism worked great for me in my 20s, in my 30s, not so much. So, um, you know, and and we have to recognize that as, um, you know, as people providing advice that are, I, I think what we have to understand is that it's not neutral and it's and it and it does have a moral component to it. Um, the way that I was explaining it in my argument is that we think that we're giving people choices when we tell them, um, you know, eat this and don't eat that. Look, now you can choose to have good health because you know, we, if you only knew, we, we hand them, as I, as I say to my students, I handed you the torch of knowledge. Now it is your responsibility to go forth and shed light on your world and, and make these choices that I've, I've illuminated for you. But in some ways, what, and this is what we forget is that we've removed a choice is that we that person no longer has the option of taking an innocent bite of anything right once we've divided the world of food up into the sanctioned and the forbidden there is no more oh it's my nephew's birthday i'm going to have a slice of cake it's oh should I have a slice of cake? If I have a slice of cake, how big a slice of cake should I have? Um, (laughs) There you go. It's right. You know, it becomes a moral imperative every time this person is selecting food. You know, that's how we, the, the good food, bad food issue morphs very, very quickly into good person, bad person. Yeah. And, and we don't control that. But we need to be super sensitive to it because we don't control it. Well, and, 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 and so much is being forgotten at this at, at this juncture. And, it, and going back to your elite uh, educated white person thing, the, the whole food movement and healthy food movement that's being driven, a lot of it I find is being very fear-based because you've got people now thinking that if they have a piece of grain-finished beef they bought at the supermarket, they're going to die from the hormones and antibiotics and the, and the commercially raised produce, you know, if they're not buying organic and same thing with the eggs and all that. And, and I'm like, the, 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 it, are they better choices? Yes. But if you have to think about them and stress over them, that stress is way worse than the nutritional difference 
in a piece of grass finished beef versus grain finished beef versus eggs and 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 I try to you know and and then the stress of of a lot of people spending money on food that they can't really afford whereas yeah. oh yeah that's a problem uh, whereas you know you look at the supermarket and the modern food system can we do better job yes but when you look at at in terms of human nutrition bang for the buck eggs dairy produce in season uh, they use meat as a loss leader in supermarkets. If you shop the sales, um, bang for the buck, you can't do any better. Yeah. And and people are getting freaked out about that. I mean, yeah. Yeah. A, and I think that, that, that fear-mongering about some of the basic food choices has just gotten people really tripped up. Yeah. So this is – so in my dissertation, I explore sort of the foundations of that and how it is that diet came to be – a risk factor for long-term health because it didn't used to be. I mean, we, it, it wasn't at one point in time. In fact, not that, not all that very long ago. So 50 years ago, diet was not considered um, a, a risk factor that you could control or, or manipulate and have it affect long-term health outcomes. It was something that you manipulated to affect um, diseases of deficiency or diseases of toxicity or to support your body it, so that it could tolerate or withstand um, health issues. But the idea that um, diet sort of in and of itself, diet nowadays carries such a huge responsibility. We blame every freaking thing on diet. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, some things are, are it, some things are just not about your damn diet. So anyway, thank you, um, thank you, Adele, <laughs> thank you. So I had this this one guy email me, and he had this nutrition question about something was going on with his feed, blah blah blah, and and on and on. And I'm like, well, I don't know, you know, I I got no clue here. And finally, he emails me back, you know, a few weeks later, is like, oh, um, yeah, it was it was the hot tub. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not always it's not always your diet. And I think that we put so much emphasis on this part of it, partly because it also makes it the individual's responsibility. If we can blame it on diet, then you are individually responsible for controlling your health outcomes because you can choose what goes in your mouth and what doesn't. Uh, you know, it's just it's just not that simple, folks. And it's it's a real problem when we um, when we make it that because should you develop a chronic disease anyway who you get you know there's nothing left to do but to go what did you do to yourself how did you manage to acquire um, diabetes how did you manage to acquire heart disease or cancer or something else you should have not done this or you should have done more of that and by, I that just, again, something that I just find incredibly problematic and, and somewhat offensive. Yeah, no, and, and I think part of the, the problem is that we, I've used in my presentations, Peter's actually seen, I use, have a picture of, of Linus holding his security blanket and sucking his yeah. thumb. And, and we've kind of gotten to where public science is sort of that security blanket, if it's published, and and it's 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 gospel and unfortunately nutritional published nutritional science i'm willing to say most of it over 90% of it's pretty bad science when you go and look at the experimental design who funded it yada 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 the current stuff and yet the the, the consumer is being inundated with 
all these studies saying one thing, and it's always a controlled study. And what people don't understand is controlled studies are controlled studies. The real world is chaos. And it's yes. multifactorial and yes. very dynamic. We're not, and, and people don't understand that good science is about controlling stuff and it helps us to understand what role that thing we're studying plays in our world. But is it that one thing? And, and, and like I say, you know, the thing on lycopene and resveratrol, well, if you want enough dose response resveratrol and dose response lycopene, you might as well order a truck tanker load of wine and a truckload of tomatoes you know, to get what that study says, yet people are like, you know, beating the doors down to get these things because of a study published said this because it's getting drummed in. And, and once again, it goes back to this this bombardment and fear factor and then people not understanding the context. And I think our right. job is to help get people settled down. And like you say, let's not chill. People have been around a long time and, and Maybe a grain diet isn't the best thing, but we've managed to survive, procreate, and build great civilizations over the last 10,000 years. And, and so, you know, it's not going to come unglued overnight. Yeah. Well, so I, I think this is I, I think this is why my obnoxious question that, that sort of got me hip-checked out of my nutritional epidemiology um, program is, is really important because although, you know, Gary Tobbs makes the argument, and I think it's a... I think it's a good argument um, that sugar and refined starches aren't good for you. And that is, is there some level of toxicity associated with them? Well, you know, it doesn't look all that um, mysterious like there, like there, you know, wouldn't be. So, but then that's true of alcohol too. And there are very few of us who are I mean, there are, you know, there are certainly people in the world who abstain completely from alcohol, but typically not for health reasons, some, but some people do. But we, we willingly take toxins into our bodies um, for various reasons. Well, you know? I, I kind of think, think the whole process of food just, just is a violent process. I mean, you know, like you say, it's a, like we were saying earlier, it's that cycle of life. Yep, 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 yep. So this is, so I, I think that, that the idea of, you know, one of the things that's just really been quite startling to me, um, I, I have friends who are practicing RD, so I'm not working clinically with patients now, but what they tell me is quite startling. They have as many patients that they see in practice that they see because these patients can't figure out what to eat. And, and this is as much of a problem as overweight and obesity. So it's not that these people have eating disorders. So this is to be, um, you know, let me differentiate this from a person who has anorexia or has another eating disorder who, who does not want to eat, um, who wants to um, avoid eating, but either can control it in, in anorexia or can't control it in terms of um, bulimia. But these are people who actually do want to eat. They would like to eat, but they can't figure out what to eat. So they keep eliminating things from their diet as they're told to. I got rid of all the gluten. I got rid of all the trans fats. I got rid of all the saturated fat. I got rid of all the animal products that aren't, um, you know, pasture raised. They don't have anything left to eat. These people are eating <laughs> salmon and carrot sticks. Seriously. And 
and this isn't a good thing. And, and my dietitian friends are having to retrain these people how to eat. And so this is part of my, you know, part of my dissertation is how did we get so stupid? How, what, how, how did all of the knowledge that we have intrinsically as animals, as critters, be, how did that get taken away from us? We've outsmarted ourselves again. <laughs> Oh, it's yeah. just, it's well, really quite amazing. Yeah, and it's funny because a lot of traditional cultures kind of had it figured out. Yeah, you know. they did. They did. I have a friend at, um, he's at, oh, is Minnesota? Is that right? Um, Craig Hassel. He wrote a great paper um, a couple of years back um, about, about how um, humankind, human civilization they've had long-standing relationships with food and health over over thousands and millions thousands of years. years. Yeah. yeah. And, and so why did we just toss that out the window in the last, you know, 50 years in, in America, not to mention other places in the, the world? We've just completely. And so this is, it's important to me that while we were seeing maybe increased toxicity, maybe we were seeing increased problems with um, how we thought about food or, or what our dietary habits were, but the rapid rise in obesity and diabetes in America came after we gave population level guidelines to prevent those diseases. That's a critical point. And so the, I, I joke that my dissertation should be called, does this rhetoric make me fat? Because there is a connection between what we tell people, the information that swirls around us in a, in a society and in a culture, and what happens in our bodies. And we can't discount that. And I think that we can't um, just push that aside and go, oh, well, people f didn't follow it, or people did follow it, and that's why it happened. Um, you know, you'll have um, some, you'll have Mary Nestle going, well, if people had followed the guidelines, we would not be fat. How do, you, how do you even know? How do you know? You don't know that. Well, if, and then, of course, there's people like Gary Tobbs and Nina Teicholz going, well, the problem is that people did follow the guidelines and we all got fat. Well, we don't know that either. We know that there's a relationship, but we don't know what the relationship is. And, and I'm here to argue that part of that relationship is a rhetorical relationship. Wow. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's a brilliant point. And I think that, you know, uh, I think a lot of people at this point in time are just overthinking it. Um, yep. It shouldn't be that. It shouldn't be that difficult. Like you say, we should be just in our our state of being and just enjoy life and 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 with a few guidelines and not overeating. You know the sugars and starches. It, things seem to work out. Right. Um, well, when we but if we what I'm seeing and what what troubles me a little bit in the low carb movement is a push to sort of overturn the guidelines and replace them with the guidelines we like. And I, I find that highly problematic. Yes, it's a con um, confirmational bias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're saying the science sucks. We don't really know what causes, what the relationship between diet and long-term health is. But <laughs> if we're going to give people advice, we should give them our advice. And, you know, that's a problem. Yeah, no, it's kind of interesting because I work with, with a, mainly a population of athletes and we find, you know, I'm sort of, I'm looking at fat adaptation, meaning getting your body back to burning fat because that's what we're meant yep. to burn aerobically. And, you know, the, the variation in carbohydrate tolerance once people get adapted is it's all over the map. Yeah. And, and people are just so different 
and and so it's just it's just this. I I, I agree with you that it's 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 not that simple, but it's it's not as it's not that simple, but it's not as complicated. No, I, you're right. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that this is part of the reason it seems complicated um, is because we've gotten away from, first of all, nourishment. We've gotten away from adequate essential nutrition. And first and foremost, if I was queen of the world of nutrition, that would be the first thing that would change is our focus when we talk to people about food would be to ensure that they are adequately nourished, whatever that means for them. And because frankly, as far as I'm concerned, one of the reasons that that um, we've gone down the wrong path is um, investing in research dollars in chronic disease is a lot sexier than investing research dollars in adequate essential nutrition. We think we know what it is, but as um, Steven Zizel, who did the work at UNC on choline, we don't know. We don't know what, I mean, essentiality changes, as you said, over the course of a lifetime. It's dynamic and it's highly individualized. Although we do have, we know what the, the um, you know, what the general contours of it are, but we don't know a lot of the specifics and a lot of the permutations, especially for populations that haven't been studied specifically. So we need to go back and we need to do that. We need to do that work and we need to lay off the whole, if you eat this way, you can live forever nonsense. Yeah, but, but at the same time, we, you know, uh, eating a lot of processed foods, you know, for anybody, especially when they're high in, you know, sugar, starch, and, and artificial fats and, and oils, you know, highly processed stuff. That's probably a good idea to stay clear of that. Not that, not well, that the occasional dose is going to kill you, but, um, you know, if that's what you're eating most of the time, that's probably, probably going to result in some unintended consequences. Right. But I can make the argument against processed food through nutrient density and through, through essential nutrition that way. Those foods are not naturally nutrient dense. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter how many vitamins you spray on them. It doesn't make them more nutrient dense. It just makes them, you know, a Diet Coke and a multivitamin. Well, and Sorry. It, exactly. <laughs> and I guess this is what the, the point is coming back to what you just said about studying these things. Um, I think the crux of it is, is back to what I was saying about where how to shop in the supermarket the items that are the best val value in the supermarket are also the most nutrient dense and most yes. most nutrient bioavailable. But the problem yes. is they're not patentable. You can't have a proprietary process. You can't make huge profits because anybody who's you know growing fresh produce or growing beef, the the margins on these things are are super thin compared to a box of yep. cereal. Yep. Yep. And yep. and so. You know, the, unfortunately, the back to the research is the the research we get on the science of nutrition is usually on stuff that's got a lot of funding available, which comes from companies who are making quite a bit of pro, uh, profit. So it's there's yeah. a there's a bit of a conundrum there that that probably needs to be ferreted out. Well, and and uh, you know, as as I like to say, the biggest the biggest interested industry is the nutrition industry, is the nutrition scientist industry, and and we handed. Um, food corporations, the marketing tools to make cereal appealing. We gave them the tools. You could not put, um, you know, this is healthy, this is low fat, this is low cholesterol, it's high in vitamin, blah, 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 without the, the backing of nutrition science to say that those foods are healthy. 
And we, because we didn't used to do this. I mean, you were not allowed to make those claims at one point in time, and now you're allowed to make those claims, and that is part of where the unequal economic footing is. Yep, yep, in the lobbying and all. It's kind of funny because, you know, I eat liver. I eat it on a regular basis in a variety of ways, but you hear people say, well, my dad used to love liver, and I hate it. And it's like, it, you know, back in the, before, you know, this whole big change in dietary guidelines, it was just common knowledge that you had liver once a week because it was really good for you. Yep, we did at my house. My, yep. you know, my mom made Thursday nights was liver and onions night. <laughs> you know, after all these years, I still remember this, right? Yeah. Because yeah, once a week, that's what you needed. You needed some liver, and that was going to. And my mom used to make us eat an egg before we left the house in the morning, that's so right. we could have breakfast cereal. Breakfast cereal was was in our house, and and we were allowed to eat it, but we had to have our egg. Yep. And, you know, there's some wisdom there that got taken away. And this is part of what really interests me is, and I don't think that the public is without blame in this regard, because I do think it's very appealing to think that you can control the outcome of your life by shopping, <laughs> by making, by going to the grocery store. And if I just shop my way to good health um, and buy all the right things, then I can live forever. And we, um, we as a shopping consuming public, were very happy to eat up the propaganda that the dietary guidelines was given us. Well, it's, it's our modern form of uh, convenience hunting and gathering. It's a convenient form yeah. of hunting and gathering because it doesn't entail killing and dressing and you know, anybody who's uh, hunted game knows how much work it is. I mean, the, the, the thrill yep. of the chase is wonderful, but once you pull the trigger, <laughs> it becomes hard work. Yes, yes. Well, my husband is an avid fisherman, and uh, my rule is I will eat all of the fish that you bring, but I'm not going to clean one single bit of it. So he brings it into the house cleaned. <laughs> there you um, go. Because it is. It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work and it's messy work and it's um you know, we've gotten to the point where we find it unpleasant and unsavory. So my grandmother used to kill chickens with her bare hands. Um and I think a lot of grandmothers a lot of people's grandmothers out there used to do that. And well, now, it was the grandmothers and the kids. It was the mother and the kids. Because I remember when I was living in Central America, you know, the kids in the in the in the out in the the monte, you know, the poor people, they the mother would tell them to go get a chicken ready for dinner, and they went out and got yep. the chicken and killed it, plucked it, prepped it, and and that's the way it was, you know. And nobody yeah. thought twice about that. Yes, yes, and we've and and so the way that we've turned meat and as you said before the whole life death separation into um, a moralistic uh, issue that we can keep referring back to body size and and health with regards to so we know when people have been good quote unquote good we know when people have been bad quote unquote bad because we can look at their bodies I mean how often have you heard um, this this sort of vegetarian um, Oh, it's it's so annoying. Um, you know, well, when I outlive you, Mr. Bacon Eater, then that'll, uh, you know, that'll show that'll show you who's, you know, got the right idea. And it's just so low. <laughs> That's just so obnoxious. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. Well, 
I think we'll wrap it now, Adele. And, and thanks for being on because we're, we're going to have to have you on uh, another time. As I said, we're going to have to have you and Peter on and, and uh, Naomi and, and continue this. Dynamic duo. Yeah. And uh, continue this conversation because, um, you know, we're trying to innovate and, and shed light on some of these important processes. So um, wonderful time. Um, keep at it and we'll keep uh, pushing it out there. And by the way, I just wanted to say uh, Eric Westman is a wonderful collaborator, isn't he? He seems to just suck people into his sphere because he's gotten, uh, you know, I, I wrote a chapter for his upcoming book and I'm good friends with uh, Glenn Brad Finkel and Yael Frankel who are doing his adapt products. Yep. And uh, um, Eric is a wonderful guy. I have yeah. never met anyone who, who, so genuinely and openly cares about the patients that he works with. It's really, I, I mean, it was just so charming sometimes to see him with his patients. I, 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 I'll tell you one more little Eric Westman story. This one woman who was really um, struggling on her diabetes medications and um, we thought that we thought she was in the stages of early dementia. That's how sort of incoherent she was. And Eric got her off all this insulin medication that she was on and her brain fog cleared right up. And she ran down the hall and practically jumped into his arms. And I think it made him happier than anything that, you know, that, that, he he's just so thrilled to see those kinds of transformations with his patients and it is just a really wonderful thing yeah, to watch. Yeah, well he's so. definitely committed but but I just like the way that that he's managed to I mean you're another example. I I see all these people that are connected to Eric um that he's sucked into his vortex of of helping get this going and they and they're just all wonderful people um well, as human beings. He, he and Mary Vernon and Steve Finney and Jeff Jeff Volick, they have been the pioneers taking the arrows for a long time. Yeah. And I have to say, I'm a I'm a settler claiming ground. And well, you're you know, gonna, you're have, a communicator. You're gonna and we're gonna help you communicate because we need those. Well, and he's and and they've done enough of the hard work um, making making it easier for me to question both sides of the issue, which I couldn't do if I was having to argue that that one side was even valid enough to be part of the discussion. So they've given me the opportunity to look beyond the black, white, this or that um, sort of thinking that we get into as humans. And that's a real blessing for me. No, no, no. It's wonderful. And yeah, because um, it's kind of interesting. My collaboration with Steve began in 2009 or 10 and led to the faster study, which they published last in 2000, late 2015. And it took five years. And I was the first yeah. person. It was kind of a mutual thing because here I was doing this with athletes and myself included. And we were getting these performance results that they said, you can't perform on fat. And he was the first researcher that said, this is possible. This is real. And, but for yep. him, what I was doing in my athletes represented a cohort that they could actually study because what we're seeing yep. is this combination of, of getting yourself back to being metabolically fit and burning fat as your primary aerobic fuel source, not being a glucose burner or a glucose addict, you know, is creating this kind of new paradigm of health. And I think you're going to see some really interesting, um, hard science come out of Jeff's, 
a faster study and, and some subsequent studies he's going to be doing. Yeah, so. I'm looking forward to the fact that now that we can begin to, I hope we can be, begin to move past the carbs versus fat thing and start asking more of those questions like about individualization and dynamics yep. um, over the course of a lifetime so that we can begin to understand that it's not a matter of this is the right way and this is the wrong way, but this may be the right way now and then it's going to be the wrong way later and then what do we do and then that kind of thing so i i think we need to answer we need to start to ask and to answer some of these more subtle questions yeah no it's it's going to be good so all right adele well thanks again for being on the program and uh we're gonna get this uh out as soon as we can and uh hopefully people People who listen to us, they tend to be athletes, so hopefully they'll be on a long run or a long ride or a long car drive. <laughs> a really long we, one. <laughs> we really burn it up, but, but that's how it goes, and, and I'm glad to do that. So thanks very much for being on, and uh, once again, this is a wrap for another Food for Thought, the OFM podcast. Thanks, so thanks for listening. You are listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, sponsored by Vespa.